Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. And now I guess I could say, as usual, it's a Tuesday show, which means Hugo and I are going to talk about uh, various things happening uh, in the world that we think are interesting. Um, so thanks for tuning in. And uh, according to the metrics, you guys seem to be liking this so far. So for as long as that's the case, we'll we'll keep doing it. Uh, and I should also, because I always forget, remind you, please rate and review us if you can. Um, so Hugo, how's it going? It's going all right. Bradley, we're, we're talking here. It's Monday morning, June 21st. Um, early voting is technically over in the New York City mayor's race. Yep. Um, but tomorrow is the actual election day. It looks like uh, turnout is below expectations, less than 200,000 people. I'm not sure that that's true. Um, turnout, early voting and absentee, as la- the last numbers I got this morning was 265. Oh, 265. Uh, I heard... I, I, th- I thought I heard 190 on the on the radio this morning, but maybe. Yeah, I, I believe that, that that's what I was told this morning from Chris. And so uh, if you assume that you're still at the six to 700 that you had in the 2013 uh, Democratic primary, which was the last open primary, you know, it gets you to 900 or so, maybe even a million. So, um, you know, if, if total turnout is between 900 and a million, that actually would be a pretty significant increase. Now, again, for listeners of this podcast, we'll hear me talk about mobile voting all the time. It's an infinitesimal number of people compared to the a city of 8.6 million. But within the norms of low turnout municipal primaries, 900,000 would be all. Yeah. Still blows my mind, uh, you know, how few New Yorkers are actually going to end up deciding, you know, the near term future of New York City. Um, uh, it doesn't I mean, just, have to be that way. If, if you are listening to this on Tuesday, the post on close till 9 p.m. Um, and if you want to be able to complain about the mayor and have a say in your city's schools and streets and public safety and parks and taxes and everything else, you got to exercise your right to vote. And yes, it's a pain in the ass. And yes, you should be able to vote on your phone. And we're working hard on that. Um, but at least for now, you got to go somewhere. Um, and uh, it's easier to not do it. But um, if you care about the city, please go out and vote. Yeah. All right. We're going to, we're going to go into the Wayback machine, I guess now, um, and, and revisit a topic that, that I guess it's a theory you've been working on for a couple of years and it's the connection between the OJ Simpson, uh, uh, murder case and the election of Donald Trump. Um, wh- why don't you, why don't you lay out how you see those things or what, what parallels you see between them? Yeah. So I remember in, in 2016, two things kind of happened at the same time, the, the Hillary Trump election. Um, and then there were all those OJ miniseries and shows that, uh, that came out. And I, I really liked the one on FX that was maybe an eight part, uh, dramatization of, of the trial. Um, and, and it kind of hit me in many ways that, that Did you Marsh, watch both the dramatization, the Ryan, um, oh God, that's what I watched. That's what I you watched. Watch yeah. And you didn't, but you didn't watch the doc series. No, I, I, I tend to not have the patience for documentaries generally. <laughs> I know. I actually remember I, the last time I sent you a documentary, I realized that was the last time. Yeah, ever- it was about like journal crusading journalists in Prague or something like that. I was like, right. I watched 12 of this and I was like, this is terrible. Um, <laughs> so I watched, I I watched every award. the, I'm sure it did. Uh, I watched the dramatized version of it. Um, so, but what hit me was Hillary and Trump were really Marshall Kirk and Johnny Cochran. And if you think about the OJ case, in many ways, it was a perfect prelude for both the 2016 election, but then really for, for Trump and Trumpism 
um, in general, right? Uh, on one hand, you had reasons and facts. On the other hand, you had emotion and resentment. Now, the resentment Johnny Cochran was playing into was resentment by African-Americans of the LAPD, so uh, different than um, uh, Trump's playing into kind of white working class voters and, and their resentment uh, of minorities. Um, but nonetheless, um, it, it, it really uh, was very similar in the way that Clark was playing not to lose, Cochran was playing to win. Clark was terrified of being criticized. Cochran threw caution to the wind. Clark was the establishment. Cochran was the outsider. He was super aggressive. He made the trial about something other than the murder itself. And if you think about it, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit is really the precursor to make America great again. And the reason why this is still relevant today is the tactics of Cochran and Trump are becoming the norm. Right. Uh, someone who is a little more moderate and soft spoken like Biden is now the exception uh, as opposed to the rule. Um, and yet, at least, you know, in kind of liberal establishment, democratic circles, you know, we constantly underestimate these types and constantly assume that Marsha Clark will win, constantly assume that Hillary Clinton will win. And, and they don't. Who do you think even has the potential, though, to be like in the in the rest of like, let's let's say in the Democratic Party? Who has the potential to be a Cochran or a Trump like that? AOC, Sanders. uh, They're too too earnest, right? Like, like maybe Sanders is. I think AOC is much savvier than that. I think she'll be whatever she she wants to die on principle. Um, I think that if significantly more powers within her grasp by the presidency, she'll say and do what she needs to say and do it away. And in her case, you don't win by moving to the center. Um, you move by mobilizing your voters uh, and getting out, out, getting so much more attention than everyone else um, that effectively dominate the whole. Thing. Interesting. I don't. I mean, I just see her as a fundamentally different type of operator than a than a Johnny Cochran. I, I mean, I, I can't even I can't even quite see a, a, a woman in that role. It's no, it's no. It's, All that means is she's more talented than Cochran, and that's why you think that. I mean, it's pretty hard to argue with Cochran's career, though. He was a pretty talented guy. I mean, he. Um, uh, yeah. And I, I think the, I guess the issue is, is whether that kind of like there's a macho masculine aspect to both Cochran and Trump that seems essential to, to how they think. No, oh, but, but the, you know, in, in both of those cases, that was to appeal to specific voters that they need, whether it was members of the jury for, for Cochran or, um, you know, voters for Trump. And everyone's got different targets and demographics. And so. You, know, you may see a much less macho version of this, but nonetheless, it's about being as aggressive as possible, as loud as possible, uh, kind of putting slogans and sort of basic concepts ahead of facts and issues, um, but also understanding that that the candidate that forms a visceral connection with the voter, and this could be in, in a municipal election, a federal election, or a, a trial or a jury, um, these days tends to be the one that ultimately wins, not the person that has, you know, the, the best policy case and the most bullet points and white papers and endorsements from people who are supposed to matter. Um, where do you see, I mean, I guess this is the question it always comes back to, um, but if, if Trump, in fact, does not uh, run in 2024, is there a Trump-like figure on the Yeah, right? I mean, Hawley and DeSantis are trying desperately to be that. Um, whether either of them have Trump's level of talent, we don't know yet. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you, you see people who are auditioning to be the nominee um, yelling and screaming as loud as they can on every possible topic because they have realized that 
that as a formula to win, um, not playing the inside game and not being the establishment. Um, without uh, causing too much whiplash on the part of our, our listeners, we're going to we're going to go from from this sort of pop culture reading uh, of politics to a uh, to a much uh, grittier nuts and bolts issue. Um, which is something you'd wanted to chat about, which is the uh, the, the public option uh, being voted into law in Nevada um, yeah. for healthcare. Tell me why that's important. So it's interesting because Nevada has cr- created something now that provides a public option for consumers that's cheaper than insurance or cheaper than Obamacare for that matter. Um, the insurance industry obviously hates it because it drives down their margins. Um, it passed because the advocates say that it's necessary to provide care for those who don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid or anything else and can't afford private insurance. And to me, what was sort of interesting about this intellectually is the question of what's a right and what's a consumer good? Because if you believe fundamentally that health care is a right, then what Nevada did makes perfect sense, which is one way or another, we need to make sure that everyone has care that they can afford. That might be Medicare or Medicaid. It might be Obamacare, it might be private insurance, or it might be a public option that sort of is an amalgamation of of different plans. Um, And if you believe this is an inalienable right that people should have, then it's incumbent on you, the government, to find a way to provide it. Or if you believe that health insurance is a consumer good that people can choose to purchase or not purchase uh, and have or not have, and it doesn't have to provide it to people as a matter of of right, um, then you would say a public option doesn't make sense because it is neither um, useful for the industry uh, nor is it necessarily great for the taxpayers, right? It's, It's only good for the person that needs the care itself. And I think that we're in a moment in society and time where there's a lot of debate over kind of what's what's a right and what's a consumer good. So, for example, we see education in this country as a right. Um, everyone has the ability to go to public school, um, whether you're here uh, documented or not or anything else. Um, healthcare sometimes is a right. So you can go to an emergency room and they can't turn you away whether you have insurance or not. Um, you can't walk into any doctor's office, get covered, um, but you can get some level of care. But housing is not considered a right, right? In fact, not only is it not considered a right, um, you are believed to have the right to not have housing if you want to, uh, to sleep on the street as opposed to in a shelter if, if that's the choice that you want to make. Um, food is not a right. Um, we have programs like SNAP and EBT and others that provide benefits for people who can't afford food. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there is no inherent right to be able to eat a square meal, um, and that's something that we have a society so far has decided. But I think that as issues of equity become more and more prominent, um, a lot of the arguments that sort of fuel the, the left and, and fuel the, the people fighting for uh, against income inequality are that, you know, they can find these very obvious extreme examples of people not being able to get access to very basic things like health care, like food like an education, like a place to live. Um, and when people don't have those, then all of a sudden the inequality seems and feels a lot more severe uh, than if people were taken care of on the basics. So I would say, even if you are a fairly wealthy person who just doesn't want the revolution to come and is worried about the guillotine coming down on your head, arguably you're better off sort of more broadly defining what's a right as opposed to a consumer good um, to head that off. How does this happen in Nevada of all places? Do you understand the dynamics there? Yeah, I mean, Nevada's a weird, so Nevada's weird. Las Vegas, obviously, is a weird city. But, you know, every state has its own idiosocratic weird politics. And, and for as a result, I think they're all kind of interesting. 
Um, so I, I kind of like all of them in many ways. Um, but, you know, Nevada is a state that um, is very transient, right? Pe- people move there to, to work in Las Vegas or to kind of that's the life that they're drawn to. Um, and as a result, it shifts. So Nevada at times in its history has been really conservative, but it's moved much further to the left in recent decades. Um, it's, it's a pretty reliable blue state and presidentials. Um, typically speaking, there's a lot more Democratic senators now that are Republican, including Harry Reid, who was the Senate Majority Leader and Minority Leader for a long time for the Democrats. And so Nevada has moved left, um, I think in large part because there are lots and lots of working people in a place like Nevada who work in the entertainment or hospitality industry, and they struggle to afford health care. They struggle to afford food. They struggle to afford housing. And therefore, in their mind, What's a right? Um, it's very different uh, than a place where people are either better off or they're so bad off that they, they have just completely disempowered altogether. What kind of knock on effects do you think it'll have in terms of legislation in other states? I mean, will it be a minute as other states review it or do you, do you see this picture? Yeah, well, the, the legislative sessions by and large are over. Um, today is June 21st. This is roughly the end of when almost every state wraps up. You got, you got a couple of outliers like Massachusetts, but by and large, things are wrapping up. So you won't see major state legislation pass probably until uh, Q1 at the earliest of 2022, more likely Q2. So I think that there won't be anything in the immediate future as a result. But I think the success in Nevada um, will lead to legislation to be introduced in probably a couple of dozen states, if not all of them, uh, in 2022. I think there are some states where it's clearly not going to pass. Um, but I think you can see more and more of a public option. And the other part here is, you know, because we have a completely failed dysfunctional federal government, um, this is a case where state government is saying, look, if the feds can't do the job of taking care of things like basic rights, like health care, um, then we're going to do it for them. And this is a place where state government is kind of stepping up and just saying, we're going to fill the gap here. And ultimately, if dozens of states starts to do it, it becomes the norm, whether Washington likes it or not. How does this affect uh, the strategies work that you do? Um, does Nevada become a state where you're like, okay, we can try something there as a, you know, try to try to move something as a as a bellwether to other states or or does it does it does it work like that? No, I don't think people say as goes Nevada, so goes you know the United States. Right. Um, but at the same time, one of the reasons that we really prefer to do our regulatory work at the municipal and state level instead of federal is we have a much broader playing field, right? So um, if you told me you the startup you invested in can only be legal if you pass this law through Congress, I would say I'm probably not going to do that, right? I know how to go about the process. But the odds of anyone being able to sort of pass and create an act of Congress, it's like synonymous with a miracle, right? Whereas if you said to me, get it going in some states, we can analyze all 50 states, figure out which ones the politics make sense for that particular issue at that particular moment and push it forward and then use that to create precedent, create proof of concept and and then scale into other places. Uh, And that's what makes state government in some ways such a better place to operate uh, than the federal government. I mean, in general, for like business clients, I mean, Nevada is a is a pretty tolerant place to do business, right? I mean, I, I mean, I, my, my view is, is obviously uh, as a tourist going there and seeing the places where you can, you know, fire machine guns or, or, you know, obviously prostitution is legal in, in, in Nevada. There's, there's a lot of, um, there's, there's a lot of stuff there that, you know, does not wash in the rest of the country. Yeah. But I mean, I think, I think, but you know, that's the, 
there's a what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And that tends to be people who don't live in Las Vegas going there, kind of going crazy for a couple of days and then slinking home in shame. Um, and then there's the people who actually live there. Uh, and, you know, they are typically working class people. There are some obviously very wealthy people and some extremely poor people. But it's a state with a lot of working class people. It's one of the states where organized labor is still really powerful and still their endorsements matter, I think, in, in, in elections. You know, by and large, I'm of the view that most institutional endorsements no longer really matter at all, and that voters are not waiting to be told by other people who they're supposed to vote for. But I think you have uh, some unions in Las Vegas, especially, you know, in the hospitality sector um, that are still very, very powerful um, because they represent, you know, hundreds of thousands of working people. Well, staying in the West, um, Colorado uh, repealed a ban uh, on cities from uh, from enacting their own firearm regulations. So first, maybe explain exactly what that means. Um, uh, to our to our listeners who might not yeah know so Colorado uh, with a you know democratic legislature and, and governor um, signed a law that that repealed the ban on cities from enacting firearm regulations so interestingly um, at the local level people try to do you know what what they think makes sense either on the left or the right and then if the power at the state level is different than the local level, if they don't like it, they'll try to overturn it by saying, no, um, we are preempting this type of decision for all of Colorado or all of Texas or whatever it is. You see the city of Austin, for example, in Texas. And, and look, I did this with Uber. Uh, you know, they ban ride sharing and Uber. And then we went to the state legislature and got the whole thing overturned. Um, so frequently, if you have a left wing city and a right wing state legislature, you'll see um bans uh, enacted sort of trying to stop the left-wing cities from making decisions, and you'll see the reverse um, as well. So in this case, uh, when Colorado was a more conservative state government, uh, there was a ban placed on cities saying, you can't enact firearm restrictions and regulations on your own. And then Colorado instead just turned around and said, you know what? Actually, you can. And, And to me, why this is particularly interesting is I actually think it makes sense to let people who are like-minded um, group and gather together and, and live with each other, right? And the idea that if you are conservative, you have to live in the South or the Midwest, um, or if you are liberal, you've got to live on the East Coast or the West Coast, um, is ridiculous and, and untenable. Um, and there's no reason why in any given state there shouldn't be places uh, where people who are like-minded can comfortably live. Um, and not my people who are very pro-gun or my people who are very anti-gun, um, but I really like that idea. And what I'm about to say right now completely contradicts everything I just said a minute ago about state government and it, it being a, a great lab for democracy. Um, but you could also make the case that that state government um, is unnecessary altogether, right? And that if you took – and keep in mind, I, I ran the state of Illinois for four years, so I, I've got a fairly nuanced perspective on this thing. And I think you could take everything that we did and either allocate the responsibilities up to the federal level or down to the county and municipal level um, and have governance happen that way instead and just eliminate hundreds of billions of dollars of bureaucracy um, that that isn't ultimately necessary uh, and could be better spent on other things. Um, The upside of that would be it would be a vastly more efficient way to govern. Um, it would be reflect kind of local control far more so than, than state governments. Uh, it would save a lot of money and, and put money into things that actually matter. Um, the downside would be it does require having an effective federal government and effective local governments um, to be able to eliminate state government. We're at a 
period right now where the federal government is completely ineffective. Um, so as a result, the, the kind of experimental nature and enforcing function of states at the moment is really necessary and, and possible. Um, but in a perfect I mean, world- particularly in health stuff, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, wanting to get rid of state health authorities right this second, not, not because they did such oh, an amazing job, can. but because you do need resources. Yeah, but, but you know, there's no real reason that Medicare and Medicaid couldn't be fully federalized programs. Uh, Medicaid is, is a combination of state and federal, but it, it doesn't have to be, right? Um, so if you look at most state functions, so take um, construction, right? There's no reason you couldn't have uh, the U.S. Department of Transportation figuring out what roads should be built rather than every single state, you know, doing the money that's appropriated to them, doing it with, with, with they, what they want on their own. Um, state police, right? The truth is, you know, I oversaw the state police. They're not solving crimes. They're giving out speeding tickets. Other people can give out speeding tickets. Um, <laughs> prison, same thing. So the, the, the vast majority of functions performed by the state are already performed either by the federal government, or by local governments, and they're just duplicative, which is, look, it's great if you're a civil servant bureaucrat because, you know, there's lots and lots of jobs without necessarily that much accountability or responsibility attached to them. Um, but ultimately, you could really shift everything either upstream or downstream um, and just save an unbelievable amount of money. Right. So um, on this Colorado thing, I was thinking about this. It, 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 it seems like it puts liberals in a little bit of a weird spot, right? So you can pass whatever law you want about, uh, you know, not wanting guns in your city. Um, but particularly if you're in a state where, uh, you know, buying and owning guns is fairly, fairly easy. It's, it's pretty hard to keep them out. Right. And what you really need is you need rigorous police enforcement, which, for example, New York City used to have. Um, and they had those, you know, those special teams of cops that I guess were pretty tough guys who, who you know, traced guns throughout the city and, and ran them down. Um, but they were also some of the units that were, you know, considered to be kind of the roughest and the, and the least um, uh, sensitive to, you know, to, to, to the rights of the, of, of people in some of these neighborhoods. So just passing a law, say, Hey, no guns in our city, but uh, we also don't think the cops have the right to enforce these laws. So. No, it, it doesn't solve the problem specifically because uh, guns are obviously very easy to, they're very portable. So guns can, you know, are frequently bought in states where, where it is easy to purchase them. And then it's called the iron pipeline transported to states where, where they're already banned or restricted. Um, however, you know, the dichotomy of stop and frisk you were talking about was in an attempt to keep guns off the street, which would be considered to be a very progressive liberal policy, uh, very aggressive policing took place, uh, targeting people of color, which was considered to be very conservative uh, and right wing. And so it was sort of right wing action enabling a, a left wing goal. But let's say you're Boulder, Colorado, and you've banned guns completely. And you say, you know what, we don't need to do stop and frisk. Uh, of our own citizens, because by and large, they don't have guns. Um, but if there are people coming into town who we don't know, and guns are showing up as a result of that, maybe we'll be aggressive with them. Uh, and then the skin color of those people, I have no idea. It could be black, could be white, could be Latino, could be anything. Um, but, you know, maybe the answer is, you know, the, the right combination of local laws and policing um, can get you what you want. We are going to uh, switch to sports briefly, but in a in a. Um, oh my God. <laughs> well, Bradley, I want I, I I texted Bradley on Saturday night and I said, Bradley, oh my God, did you watch the Nets game? 
And he said, no, my daughter had a bunch of friends over and, um, you know, I didn't see it. And I was like, Bradley, you have one television in your house. So you in fact have one television. Yeah. Yeah. We have one TV in the den. Now we have four people and I think three laptops on a desktop and a couple of iPads. So there's no shortage of places to watch something if you really want to. Um, but yeah, my, it was my daughter's birthday. She, we were at our place of state. She had five friends, uh, sleep over, uh, they watched, I think, call me by my name, by your name. I didn't, didn't see it. Something like that. And then Lyle sat with them, but with an iPad and AirPods and watched Rick and Morty, uh, instead. Wait, wait, and so you watched the movie with the girls or no, you didn't? No, I, I didn't either. I was reading, uh, in the bedroom. I was plowing through that Sackler book, which we can talk about if you want. Um, but, um, wait, just tell, just tell, just cause I don't think that Sackler book is going to, is going to, um, is, is people going to know what you're talking about. So just mention what it is. There's a book called, I think it's house of pain. Is that right? Or is that, that's the band from the nineties. Um, I believe that is the title of the book. Uh, and it's about the history of the Sackler family. The Sacklers owned Purdue pharma. They maybe still kind of do. It depends on how the bankruptcy proceedings play. Wait, out. I just want to say it's empire of pain, not house of empire pain. Of pain. How, right. House of pain was the, 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 the jump around guys. Um, so, uh, <laughs> The first part of the book is sort of the story of these of these the Sackler brothers grew up, you know, very lower middle class in, in Brooklyn uh, and ended up being these sort of business and, and medical geniuses and created this whole new form of, of pharma. And then ultimately the, the next generation um, developing OxyContin and then really pushing it out there into the marketplace, even after it became clear to them that OxyContin was becoming a widely abused drug. Um, and it was about how that all happened. Um, really interesting book. You know, I, I think I took two things away from it. Um, one, um, it, it is interesting when you had a generation that uh, really was kind of smart and creative and did big things. And they passed the baton to the next generation who didn't necessarily have the hunger or the same abilities as their parents. And instead they kind of, it's not that they just frittered away the money. They actually made a lot more money than their parents did, but in a way that was obviously really, you know, uh, improper because they understood that they were subjecting all these people to addiction and, and chose to do so anyway. So it's a little bit of an interesting study in kind of one generation compared to the next. For me also, though, when I finished it, I remember thinking, okay, remember thinking this was like yesterday, um, really good book. I still prefer a novel. Um, and no matter how good nonfiction writing is, you know, I still would always prefer, prefer a good fiction. If you like nonfiction, though, Empire of Pain, I think, is worth reading. Um, if you prefer fiction, stick to fiction. Well, let, let, let's talk for a second, though. You, you, uh, we've, we've discussed many times on this podcast uh, the, the, uh, you know, the view of journalists as these sort of unbiased truth tellers who are just like, you know, laboring away for the public good um, is, is a kind of romantic and perhaps naive view of, of, of how the industry really works. In a book like this, what I, I know Patrick a little bit and have worked with him, and I, I'm not uh, in any way asking you to cast aspersions on him particularly. But where do where do journalists? Uh, what do you have to guard against when you're reading uh, this kind of book? Like, what's what's the what are what kind of like skepticism or or filter do you bring to it? Yes, yeah, so and normally, and this is part of why I like the book. Uh, the goal of the journalist who wants to get praise on Twitter, good reviews in the Times and everything else would be just to sort of demonize the the Sacklers and the, and the company as much as they possibly could to say they're evil. I am enlightened and woke. Um, I will uh, absolutely beat them to smithereens. 
and I will get the approval that I need as a result to sell more bugs. Um, what I liked about Empire of Pain is it, it didn't do that. It was a much more thoughtful, subtle, nuanced portrait of both the Sackler family and even the second generation who really drove OxyContin forward. It wasn't sympathetic to them, um, but it really did sort of examine things in, the, in a reasonably impartial, objective way uh, and try to tell every side of the story. And as a result, I actually came away more convinced about their culpability because the book was objectively written. Um, if the book was simply these people are all evil and money is bad and capitalism is bad and business is bad, uh, you know, then I think I would have just discounted the entire thing and probably stopped reading um, because it was thoughtful and nuanced. Uh, I felt like it was a pretty, must be a pretty accurate depiction. Uh, and I think it was just better journals. Well, I'm going to read it. I, I know Madeline Sackler. She's not involved in the company at all. I, I, I think she's a wonderful person. Um, and I, I've been sort of avoiding it for that reason. Um, uh, she's a filmmaker who's, who's done some really, really good work and, and is uh, certainly a member of her family, but not, um, uh, not in the, in the family business. Um, and uh, so I've, I've been, had some sort of mixed, ideas about reading the book myself. Um, and Madeline actually is in the book a decent amount towards the end. And I, I know Madeline through you as well. And what's interesting is she's the third generation. And, and the, the question that she was confronted with is, okay, you're not involved in family business at all, but you are a successful filmmaker who's able to finance your entire career and, and your projects off of these billions of dollars made from the sale of I think that's a little unfair because I know Madeline has raised money from independent uh, financiers for her movies. She has not just bankrolled her career. That's knowledge you have that didn't make it into the book then. Right. Because the, the book implied that it was all self-funded. Um, I mean, you should go see the movie she made. and, and if I saw can, the OG. I saw it with you, I think. Right. Oh, yeah, you did. You're right. Nobody, yeah. nobody OG, right. Um, uh, nobody threw tens of millions of dollars at that movie. She she worked to get, uh, to get but Either way, the question is, what do you do if you're the next generation, you're not involved in the business ever, um, you do something totally different, but you are still a very wealthy person, whether it's financing your movie projects or just your really nice apartment or house or whatever, car or whatever it is. Um, it's a good question. How culpable should they be? How much should they be blamed compared to their parents or grandparents? Um, she didn't come off terribly in the book. And I also know and like Madeline, um, but I wouldn't be happy about that book if I, my last name was Sackler. Wait, we were going to talk about steroids in sports. Talk about steroids you, in sports you, oh, right, yeah. We were talking about basketball and then, Crazily enough, you, a huge basketball fan, curled up with a book on a Saturday night with the best New York City basketball game since, I mean, what, when was the last one of this import? Uh, the game seven in a Eastern Conference semifinals. Wait, Carmelo? Like era? In 1999. No, not even. They, 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 they lost. So, but it wasn't even in that 99, close. they got to the finals. I mean, in 99. The, the Knicks in 99. And then the Nets, you know, they were in New Jersey. You know, that was a five-game series. I think they lost the Spurs in five. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But they at least made the finals. And then there was a couple of years in the early 2000s those Jason Kidd teams where the Nets made the finals. But, you know, they were in New Jersey, so nobody was really paying attention. <laughs> I like how you say that. I th just the other day, you were actually talking about, like, what a great – you were going to move some businesses to New Jersey or something. <laughs> was I? No, I don't know. I can't remember. You're, you go all over the place on the subject. I will tell you this. I'm going to endorse He's running for re-election. Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, is an excellent governor. Uh, okay. And it's I guess very, that's what you're talking about. Very focused on creating tech jobs. And we have worked closely with his office to do that and with Phil to do that. And I admire him greatly. There you go. Steroids. So it, it starts with this, this, this spider tack controversy in baseball, which they have majorly clamped down on. Like, you know, they're going to search, you know, the, 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 
the, the gloves of, of, of uh, pitchers and fielders and anybody who gets caught is subject to these onerous new penalties. Um, you think uh, you want to take this argument that steroids should be legal, but let's stick with the substance that they're putting on baseballs. Should this be legal? So it's a good question, right? So I, I think that on one hand, because as we were debating this over the weekend on text, you were able to take it to a logical conclusion where all of a sudden my argument didn't make any sense anymore if you're using a cork bat or something like that. But um, people are allowed to use a certain amount of pine tar to grip the bat, a certain amount of resin to grip the ball. Um, if they're using 30% more resin in, in a different form, should that definitely be illegal? I don't know. Um, it seems to me it's not a moral question. It's it's a functionality question right now. Well, as a baseball fan, though, you have an opinion, right? So if you're if you let... If you let them use like the spider tack, you know, they study the spin ratio goes up a certain amount or whatever. This, I don't so even... here's what I would rather see. Right. So I'm a baseball fan. Right. And I will say I don't know the players personally, and I'm not really that concerned with their well-being one way or the other. Right. I, I am concerned with my entertainment. Right. But you don't uh, want to see them get hit in the head with a pitch. I mean, like... no, of course not. But so right now, pitching uh has evolved significantly ahead of hitting so 25 percent of that bats result in strikeouts uh if you go to a game you'll see that the whole lineup is hitting like 230 um and uh you know pitching his way up and hitting hitting his way down and so if you said to me rather than making the pitchers worse by moving the mound back uh, a foot or lowering it or not allowing pitchers to use resin to grip the ball let the hitters take steroids. Let everyone come at their very absolute best. Uh, the players will perform at their peak level, and fans be entertained at the peak level. And yes, uh, it, it may result in long-term health problems for the players, um, but I think they have the right to make that choice about their own bodies. Uh, and they, they do, right? They're they're adults, so they do. But if you're if you're you know if Lyle is getting into baseball and he's actually kind of good, and he's like, Dad, I'm, I'm going to yeah. take. This well, let's let, let's say the metaphorical Lyle then, the yeah. symbolic Lyle. He's, a, um, he's inherited my athletic talent. Right, that's a frightening concept. But uh, did he? If 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 your fourteen year old son were like, you know, Dad, I don't think I'm going to be able to make the the varsity baseball team unless I like start juicing. Um, what, as a parent, you're like, well, go for it, kid. It's all about the entertainment. Like, um, no, because it, that's not professional sports, and he is still a minor. Um, but here, let's, let's, let's take it a level further. So as a, as a 12 year old, no, but let's say he was playing division one college baseball, right. And may or may not probably won't advance to the majors. Statistically speaking, how many division one players actually play in the majors? Like much less than 1%, right. Um, yes, I have no idea, but yes, yeah, so anyway, if you just think about the math, it's got to be right. So, um, or at least have a full career in the majors. But if he said, I'm competing at a really high level. I am over the age of 18. I can drive a car. I can be drafted to serve in the army. And I'm choosing to take, you know, human growth hormone to make me a better hitter. I, I don't know that I would necessarily tell him that he shouldn't, you know, um, I think no, I, I, would. I, I get that, but it's, it, it's, there's no dividing line between when it's okay and when it's not okay. That is clear, easy to draw. Right. Yeah. So, cause if to, yeah. to the point where he's a good division one baseball player, he's probably already started to like, devote his entire no, but the dividing the dividing line is being an adult i think if, if you're over the age of 18 I don't, I don't see nothing wrong with you deciding for yourself i will choose to take this performance enhancing drug and incur whatever health risks come with it or i will choose not to right 
Um, but I would rather let the athletes decide that for themselves. One, it respects kind of their own personal sovereignty. Two, they're going to perform at a higher level if they choose to do it. And three is the fans were more entertained. We're seeing a higher quality sports. Um, and so a high school kid, no. But I think that the distinctions that we make right now are, are so silly, right? Like, you know, you, you can't have too much resin, but you can literally choose to have Tommy John surgery, even if you don't need it, to remove a ligament and rebuild your entire arm so you can throw the baseball better, right? That's okay, right? Um, or you could take all kinds of medication uh, for pain and swelling and inflammation and everything else. Um, but you can't take something uh, that would allow your body to recover faster after working out. You know, these are distinctions without differences and they don't make sense. And I think rather than saying, oh, spider attack is terrible and steroids are terrible, we have to crack down on all this, which is the conventional narrative that you see coming out of sports. Uh, I would far rather take a, a more you know, substantive look at this and say there are substances that I think should be up to the athlete to choose to use or not use. Well, I mean, you look at the changes that are happening very with, you know, incredibly quickly on gambling now and the, and the league suddenly becoming, um, you know, very open to it. Uh, I mean, that's a huge change from 10 years ago um, or, 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 you know, further than that, when the leagues were really did everything they could to, to frustrate the, uh, the development of gambling. Um, right. But now that's, that's changing significantly anyway. Right. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you just one question, though, to it, to to leave it at. What is, in general, your appetite for like sort of reform and innovation within the game of baseball? Let's just stick to baseball for a second. Very high. Very so there's high. a yeah. So like for example, Theo Epstein, who was the great general manager of the Red Sox and Cubs, um, is now an advisor in Major League Baseball, and his job is to sort of figure out innovation and improving the game. And he was on uh, the Bill Simmons, Simmons podcast a couple of months ago. Um, and I thought it was just fascinating, all the different things from making the bases bigger to requiring pitchers to face a certain number of batters to pitch clocks itself. Um, the bases is bigger so that like, there's just, like, you can slide into different areas of it or yeah, something? So you have, you have more, it just encourages more offense. That You can steal bases a little more easily. You're, you're, you're more likely to be safe when you're sliding at the second or third. God, that would um, look just, terrible, though, don't you think, if they make the bases really big? Yeah, so they're trying out all of these different things. Robot umpires, they're trying that out right now, I think, in the Atlantic League, which is sort of a very low level of the minor leagues. Look, tennis, I think, I'm not a tennis fan, but but tennis uses uh, technology to determine if a serve is, is in or out. Um, I don't see any problem with doing that for balls and strikes. So anyway, I'm, I have a very high tolerance for uh, innovation in baseball. And uh, tell me your level of concern about DeGrom's arm. Well, um, you know, one hand, I'm concerned because he is having what experts will say is the greatest season by a pitcher in the history of baseball. Baseball is a 130 or so, more 150-year-old sport at this point. Um, and you're saying that this is the single best anyone's ever done it. You want them to do it at the absolute highest level. Uh, and he's doing it despite uh, facing kind of arm issues, his, his shoulder his lat was tight. He's had different things uh, in different games. So uh, my hope is that um, that he'll be okay. He's pitching tonight, the first game with a doubleheader. Uh, he had an MRI for his shoulder. Everything came back clean. So if DeGrom is playing well, A, that's just a much more fun baseball team to follow and game to watch. And B, uh, the Mets' chances of staying in first place are a lot higher. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's quite as top of mind as like winning this election tomorrow, um, but it's pretty high up there for me. <laughs> All right, Bradley, talk to you next week. See you, guys.